You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah, Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. And as we always do this time, every show, it's time to welcome Marty Gibson for Media Matters. Good morning. Good morning, Marie. How are you doing? I'm good. Is I'm he, good. Yeah, very a one-armed paper hanger, right? Uh, yeah, I am this week because my event is on this week. So I am, I feel like I'm I'm juggling balls with right arms and left arms and two left arms and two right arms, but it's all good. Pressure makes diamonds. <laughs> As they say. Hey, um, speaking of pressure, I think how Chippy is feeling it. He's got to be feeling it. It's that feeling, I guess, that's uh, the political equivalent of bleeding to death. <laughs> you know, when you can feel the, the, your own blood warm on you and uh, it makes you feel a bit faint. Yeah, absolutely. So what we're referring to, of course, is the One News Varian poll that came out on Monday. There are polls and then there are polls, and depending on who commissions the poll, they all reckon their poll is best. The One News Varian is sort of one of those ones that's considered gold standard. It was bad. It had um, Labour now, second poll that has shown Labour sitting in the 20s, 29% down four, National 37% up two, Act up one to 13, Greens up two to 12. And it showed last time they had New Zealand First on 3%, they've shown New Zealand First up to 4% on one, which means... That again, it's that trend. He's trending upwards in all these polls. He's in with a sniff. Yeah, I mean, the mystery is how they've held up so long. And I guess we'll, we'll get into that kind of mindset that you need to believe absurdities. Believing absurdities is right. And we are going to get into that. The uh, What that means in terms of seats in the House, it means that a National Act block will have 65, Labour Greens to Patamari, 55, a clear 10 seat majority with five seats over that magical 60 seat mark. The trend is not good. The trend is not good. Preferred Prime Minister. Well, not good for who? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Not good for Labour for sure. Preferred Prime Minister Hipkins was down three to twenty-one percent. Luxon was steady on twenty percent. So still twenty yeah. percent likes the bobblehead. I, I saw an interview with him. Actually, it was Kerry Woodham interview I listened to, and he actually did come across a lot better on that. So maybe mm. your friend's media trainings uh, working on. Maybe he's been drilling being authentic. From what I understand at the meetings, he's been doing a lot of town hall meetings around the country and those have actually been received quite well. I think he potentially one-on-one is a lot better, but the reality... You hear that, of- don't you? You hear that he's actually a lot better uh, one-on-one than he is. I found that about Helen Clark too, you know, in person. She was quite attractive and charming. I did vote for Helen Clark for mm. two of the three cycles that she ran. And before you all go running, screaming to the hills, thinking, oh my gosh, oh, it must have been a folly of youth. No, I didn't, because I lived in her electorate. And I knew her. She used to come into the, the place. She used to be across the road from me. And she used to come into the, my place of work. I used to see her in a professional capacity. She was a charming woman. She was very personable. And her superpower is she never forgot anybody. And it didn't matter how how or where she interacted with them. She had this incredible innate ability to remember people's names. And if she couldn't remember the name, the context in which yeah, they were Yeah, you need that pl- to be in politics. I don't have that in spades. Well, she <laughs> she had it. And so years later, so I mean, this is, oh, I mean, it was the first two times round that I voted for her. 
fast forward many years later, so I, by this stage, had I was actually living here in the Bay, so it would have been about 18-odd years ago. It was the last election before she went out and lost to John Key. And so she was flying in with her entourage to um, have a visit to the Bay. And I was flying out with my then boss up to Auckland for a series of meetings. And so we're at the airport and we were coming up to board our flight. She had just come off her flight. And as we're walking past each other in the terminal, she looks at me, I look at her and she was like, Marie, (laughs) it's been a long time. So good to see you. Yeah. Helen, it's great to see you. Amazing. And I said, I heard you're in the bay, but you know, we put the weather on for you. I hope you have a lovely day. And off I go with my flight. My boss is sitting there his mouth on the floor, and he's like, you know her. And I was like, I lived in her electorate. She used to come into my previous job. And that was years ago. Like, I mean, I wouldn't have seen her for yeah. five years. Walked across the road years. from her, and she had these street corner meetings. And, yeah, again, in person, she came across a lot more warm-blooded than she did on TV. And, yeah, we were sort of having this meeting, and some there must have been a rugby game on or something, and some people went past who probably drunk and on bikes, and they went, ah! And she said, and that's why we don't want lights at Eden Park. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, there's something about the sorcerer's apprentices uh, in power now that makes you nostalgic for Clark and Cullen, isn't it? They weren't so bad. Indeed. But it also shows you the importance of that authenticity and personality. And that is something that um, that she had in spades. From what I understand, dear leader had it too. Look, I just I, I didn't see it personally, but many well, did. Well, old Lusker, when he was interviewed on uh, the Crunch last week, was very generous to Jacinda, uh, you know, and saying that she was a really nice person. That's the importance, I think, of actually getting out and doing those town halls, and good on Chris Luxon for doing it. And he has been hitting those roadshows hard. Look, it's a tried and true political tactic. And what we're referring to with Simon Lusk was the political tragic interviewed by Cam on the crunch last week. Mm. I highly recommend you listen to it. It is a fantastic interview. The best political journalism in New Zealand right now, and it receives zero dollars from government. Is it a coincidence? Yeah, exactly. Well, that. What is so important, I thought, with that interview, he has worked for the Labour Party. He's anyone that will hire him, essentially. He Mm. is a political Svengali who will craft a campaign to help candidates win. That's what he does. He knows that better than anything else. Now, for someone who works in the sphere of uh, marketing and sales and building businesses, as I've done, he had advice that not only wins political campaigns, but grow successful businesses. And his advice was, is you have to grow your base. You have to create a community. You've got to be authentic and actually put in the work, put in the FaceTime work and actually get out there and put the gumboots on and roll your sleeves up and get down and dirty with the people that you're there to represent. That's what wins campaigns. Databases, yeah. Yeah, I certainly know with the work that I do now as community is everything the community that we've created with uh, with the day job that community is what's going to get us through these recessionary times that and and it will help support us not only fiscally but emotionally too and i get to interact with a lot of these people this coming weekend which i can't wait um whilst it's a lot of work for me now that will fill us the cup and that's important so i do give luxon credit for going up putting the work in and doing that and as we know winston he's been at it for a while it's how he won the by-election in northland it is that old adage of shaking hands and kissing babies isn't it yeah yeah 
I don't know, like most people, I, uh, I'm looking forward to a change of government. I'm mindful as well not to get my hopes up too high mm. uh, because I guess with Luxon, you know, one of the most telling things for me was that question that John Ansell asked him at a meeting. You know, if you could satisfy yourself that adding fluoride to water decreased the IQ points of young people and the jab wasn't safe or effective and that there was no principles of the treaty, let alone sanctioning co-governance, would you change your mind and your policy? And he just snapped, no. Mm. That's where you don't get your hopes up too much. And I mean, you know, with Winston Peters the other day when he was interviewed and they were taking him to task about having Kirsten Murphy as a candidate, there was so much he could have pushed back with that wouldn't have gotten him into any trouble around conspiracy theories, just with raw data and just commitment to freedom of speech. He just wilted. I just felt again, ah, oh, I've been suckered in by hope. Hopium. Mm, Hopium. So, Andrew Vance, I'm going to jump there because in her column, she said we really need to start using the L word about politics. And the reason I bring this up is because there was the moment this week uh, where Nicola Willis called out Grant Robinson. She found a, a fiscal error in the numbers mm. that they did when they put out their policy. I think she does actually some great work for the National Party. I think a lot of people, if they're going blue, they're not necessarily going there for Chris, they're going for Nicola. Yeah. Especially a lot of those female voters that voted, what was it, 400-odd thousand, yeah. Cam was saying the other day, yeah. uh, voted Labour last time. So Nicola is doing a good job. And she's doing that deputy leader scrappy at the heels, calling out stuff job, which then, of course, prompted our friend Squealer to have a wee moment. <laughs> Uh, have a wee moment on radio where he said, that's a lie, she's um, she's lying about that. And Andrea Vance is sort of saying, well, people, it's a, it's a word that they don't use. She said here, MPs are banned from using unparliamentary language in the chamber, which normally includes to referring to their rivals as liars. This etiquette generally spills over into the real world. That's why last week the little squabble between Grant Robertson and Nicola Willis got reporters excited. The finance minister was upset because Willis had claimed a rift had developed with the PM, Chris Hipkins, over the new GST policy. That's a lie. She is lying about that, Robertson said on a radio show, over 24 hours, and that was the claim that was thrown out repeatedly. But see, the thing is, is Squealer needed to pop himself off to Damascus, obviously, to get himself over that rift. That's well, obviously well, how you do it. Yeah, just watching him defend the GST policy. I mean, it's interesting to watch someone when you think they're lying. You know, you can watch him. He knows it's a terrible idea. And I think, you know, we're talking about uh, Labour's decline in fortunes in the latest poll. If you want um, an inflection point in the graph where it starts heading for the low 20s, which I think is where Labour will go, I think that'll come to be regarded as the moment that it all started to go bad because no one thought that was a good idea. I'll go back to that story about the conversation I had with a checkout operator who said, you know, half of the people who go through a checkout put between six and 12 items back. And I said to her, well, what do they put back? And she said, oh, the good stuff, the fruit and vegetables. Hmm. So, you know, if you reduce the price of that, do you think, what, they're going to put the Coke back? No. No, of course they're not. Everybody universally lambasted it, even, I mean, even Shane DePoe wasn't overly fond. Andrea goes on to say, for years, I've watched MPs tell their face dead in the eye untruths. I can give you half a dozen examples 
from this year alone when a senior politician has said one thing and I know different version of, the, of events to be true. Like, well, actually, I think you, you can be in politics without lying. Do you know what really upset me about that? It's like, what? okay, Andrea, and why why wasn't that reported? Yeah. Because isn't that your job, Dullin, to yeah. actually be there as the fourth estate to actually call things out? And if and if you're not doing that, even if you don't call it a lie and you call it an untruth or whatever it is, aren't you just then becoming an enabler to bad behaviour? Well, I was thinking about this actually when I was walking my dog. I know that people in the media are listening listening to Reality Check Radio, and we know this because when we break new facts or whatever, they pop up mysteriously and uncredited in, in the mainstream media. But I think it's worth having a, a moment of compassion for journalists, you know, I mean, they've got mortgages to pay. And, you know, a lot of them have probably gone from drinking one bottle of wine a night to two, two and a half. You know, I'd extend an invitation to them, you know, if, if, if there are things that you'd love to be reporting on, but you can't because ultimately your news agency that you're working for is owned by BlackRock and you're not allowed to, give us a call. I'm happy to uh, to uh, observe Act. the usual source protection. Act as a conduit? Tell us the things that you're not allowed to say and, and we'll say them. And I hope if you're listening to us, you know that we're, we act in good faith. We don't bark at every passing car and, and like, I would be charitable enough to say, like everyone, we want to see a better future for New Zealand and especially um, better outcomes for our children and people generally. So, you know, we're on the same team, but it just so happens that we're able to do this for free. So we're not so much uh, tied to financial incentives to say certain things. Well, there is certainly a freedom that we have, and that is something that we have cherished. And again, if you're a member of the Reality Check Radio Foundations Club, it's because of people like you that we can have these conversations, and we can have these conversations without censorship. These are what we think, and we can put those messages out there, as Marty said, with those other pressures put to bear. That's also, too, for me, a lot of the media now and a lot of the good information, obviously, is not found in our broadsheets every day. It is found in other places like Substacks and newsletters. And one of the ones who has been commenting for years and has done the most brilliant job of providing oversight, an alternative oversight to what's going on in our political landscape, of course, has been Dr. Muriel Newman, a former Act MP, mm. and she writes uh, for the NZCPR, so nzcpr.com. Rodney interviewed Muriel last week on Real Talk. Fantastic if you haven't Absolute had a chance. Cracker. Yeah, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it. Muriel's gift to the world is that she is able to concisely express clearly and call out just the utter BS that's going on in the political landscape. Her current article is uh, called Six Years of Failure. Yeah. After hearing uh, her interview with Rodney, I downloaded this. And it's really important because this is the problem. Because media has become so intense over the six years with this Labour government who have wielded media like a weapon and manipulated it, full credit to them. I mean, who masters the media is is going yeah. to master the hearts of the people. And Labour have done it. They've really caught everyone well, napping, to I, be fair. Yeah, I've made the point before that there's been that inversion of the usual rule that politics is downstream from culture. 
there's been a real effort to put politics upstream of culture. And that's that's been a little trick over the past few years. And, you know, after um, Donald Trump was elected, you know, he, he was the guy that the FBI and the CIA really didn't want. But he tweeted his way to the presidency. And it was in the lead up to the 2020 election in the States that the real crackdown on social media started. And I think there's going to be the next wave. And you see a lot of, I mean, I've, I've often spoken about how I'm noticing my search results, even on DuckDuckGo, which is now owned by Google anyway, uh, are very one-sided. And if you don't have a clear idea of your opinions based on facts going into this age, you're not going to get them. And that ties in as well with a lot of the hard left people in New Zealand longing for the baby boomers to die off and the older Kiwis to die off because they've got the kids. Mm. So speaking of that, things that come out of the blue, Muriel covered this. So her piece was looking at the six years of failure. So she says here, after nine years of national economists were describing New Zealand as having a rock star economy, a listener poll published at the time showed 84% think we are doing incredibly well for a small country at the bottom of the world. 76% believe, given the current state of the world, there's no better country to live in. And she sort of goes on to actually highlight some of the things that they went through. Now, why it's important this week, this is the period of time, it's about now in 2017, that angry little decided he couldn't do it anymore and came out Jacinda. Mm. And the media just completely lost their shizzle over her. Yeah. And, and this this wave of Jacinda mania appeared. And I think Andrew Little was polling around 23%, I think, at the time. She managed to get them over the line to, what, 36 in seven weeks. But that was enough to give her a snuff and, and the rest we know is history. There was a great interview with Stephen Joyce. Toby Manhire, I think, uh, did it uh, on their Gone by Lunchtime podcast. He was saying, you know, yeah, everything was was going pretty good, but, you know, she came in and she looked all fresh and new and that made us kind of look old and stale and that was enough. Yeah. I think think now that uh, Nationals' fortunes are improving, there probably won't be a, a flip of Nicola Willis being the prime ministerial candidate and Luxon being a deputy, but... I've always thought, you know, that that would be a better arrangement. It would it would uh, get the ladies excited about uh, in a way that maybe they're not excited about Luxon's commitment to gender equity. You know, he's got 21 out of 40, I think, list candidates of women. But also, more importantly, it would give Luxon the ability to do what he's good at, and he probably is a good manager, and it would give him the freedom rather than... And, and this was something, I think... Also, Stephen Joyce said, the thing about being PM is you have to go to everything, and a lot of it's kind of ceremonial almost. You don't get to just put your head down, your bum up, and do the hard work. And I think that would work a lot better. Mm. But, you know, I mean, we'll see. Maybe you could do it. But it would be a good look for him as well in terms of, you know, I think the perception is that, you know, there's always that criticism that they just want to add something to the CV. I don't think that's really true, but probably is true on on some level. Did you see Coglin got his knickers in a twist over what you were talking about in terms of that equity? As you said, there was almost that equals bit male-female. And then they've they've always been criticised national. Their list not have been too Pākehā and not having yeah. enough Māori. They've got more Māori on the list than they ever have. But then Coglin said, oh, yes, but on current polling, that balance gets thrown out. 
Well, as, as Hosking said, give me the give me confidence, and yes. and I mean you can see this in Trudeau's cabinet. Why is fifty percent of your cabinet female? Uh, because it's uh, two thousand and whatever the hell it was. Oh. It was a long time ago. Canada certainly suffered as a result of that. Just I couldn't give a rat's. I couldn't give a rat's ass of what the gender, the race of whoever it was was there. Outcomes. If you can deliver me an outcome, I'm a happy camper. Yeah. Couldn't care less. And I think a lot of Kiwis are getting that way. Muriel goes on to say, and this is where the memory holing comes in and how they all got swept up about our Jacinda. Labour's new leader assured New Zealanders that if she became Prime Minister, she would be open, honest and transparent. Oh, those were the days. Oh, those were yeah, more innocent times, weren't they? Innocent times. Thanks to the vagaries of MMP, she was appointed our Prime Minister, but open, honest and transparent. She was not. The warning signs were all there. The fact that she'd been the president of the International Union of Socialist Youth, and this is the bit I didn't realise, and continued in that role for a further 15 months yeah. after being elected our Prime Minister. Oh, really? After being Prime Minister? Yes. Uh, surely. I, I thought that was just after being an MP. No. And I trust the Muriel. Yeah, so 15 months after being elected Prime Minister, dangerous extremism revealed itself early on in her Prime Ministership. She claimed climate change was going to be her generation's nuclear-free moment. She later declared a climate emergency and introduced the world's most extreme zero carbon act. It only exacerbated our cost of living crisis. You look at that, because I think a lot of people have forgotten that, that she'd done that. And remember, the one of the first things she did when she came in was the captain's call, banning the all call. new oil and gas exploration. Didn't campaign on that. Mm. Now, you look at the theme of a lot of the things that we saw over the paper over the weekend in regards to climate. Mm. that climate drum is being banged. And the, oh, yeah. to use a COVID phraseology, it seems that the science is very settled on climate, according to all yeah. the reporting. Certainly according to Google. The funny thing was on that Sunday, Big Sunday Star Times focus article, that the facing page had a pullout from Andrea Vance's um, column, which was, for years I've watched MPs tell barefaced dead in the eye on truths. And the article was full of barefaced, dead in the eye, untruths. And I mean, you know, like just sighing things said as facts, like, yeah, modeling over five decades has proved if, if effectively right at predicting global temperatures. They say it actually hasn't. It's tended to overestimate warming by around 100%. You know, what's sure. an interesting talk by Michael Schellenberger, who wrote Apocalypse Never. And he said deaths from natural disasters are down by 90% over the past 100 years, even as the population has quadrupled. Emissions peaked in the UK and the US 50 years ago. They've been declining this decade. Great Barrier Reef had the highest coral growth measurements, and that was begun since the time measurements were begun 36 years ago, probably before that. Yeah, it was intriguing. I'm saying uh, the NDAT Centre in Belgium says total global weather and climate disasters have declined, and that's the only international body that measures them. So that's totally at odds with the picture. And then, of course, you bring into it that travesty of Niwa ignoring all of that barometric data that uh, Ian Wishart very cleverly dug out, which showed that in the late 1800s, storms were far bigger and far more common. 
So they are barefaced lies because if you care to, to actually look, there are all these things being said that really aren't true, which isn't to say we shouldn't look after our environment. I think we should look after it a lot better than we should. We should you know, really control trawling and we should improve our fresh water. And we could do that with the billions that we're sending overseas. But it's not about the environment. It's about the printing of the, the money, specifically debt. And, and in that quote, that first quote you put out, modelling. Modelling yeah. isn't hard data. Modelling is some little boffin with letters under his name sitting there contemplating and navel-gazing. And like anything, a model is only as good as the parameters that you set at the beginning of your model. Yeah, well, you can you can decide what a model is going to show, and the Occam's Razor fact is you can get funding for a model that shows temperatures going to increase. You can't get it for a model that says it's going to decrease. In the same way as you can get paid for media that tells kids that they're about to boil to death in the next ten years, but you can't get it if you say, "Hey, wait a second, you know, is this the best thing?" And as I said, as I've said. You know, on a few occasions, we're all set according to, you know, some some earlier government reports. There's a possibility that our Paris Accord commitments might cost us seventy billion dollars this decade. Seventy billion dollars—that is thirty times the total treaty treaty settlement. And if you think about how much we've torn ourselves to bits over the treaty settlements, there's been very little, very little sceptical coverage of climate alarmism. And yeah. to the point where now it's entirely absent. So on that, in theme, in the Sunday Star Times, there was a huge piece about the red zoned Pai area. And I'm not going to dive into all of that because it's very much a local thing here. And it's it's been quite huge. This report was written by Andrea Barnes. And she talks about a lot of the nuts and bolts things that are going on in the ground here in Hawke's Bay. But it's the subheading that leapt out at me. Uh, red zoned Pai six months after the cyclone, Pai locals face awful choice. The subheading, as the costs of climate change rise, the government has begun forcing flood owners to, to move, prompting clashes over what's fair, National Affairs Editor Andrea Vance. As the costs of climate change rise. Now, what costs are those, Andrea? Because, as you said, Sheldon, natural disasters are one thing, but also, too, you know, or are those Down costs 90% that come... Of yeah, or are they the, these the costs that um, signing up to the United Nations Agenda 2030 have cost us? What are the costs? Yeah. Is it us being signed up without ever voting for it for the WEF Agenda of 15-minute cities and having to clear people out of the country? And it's worth remembering this neo-feudalist agenda. The people who are going to resist it are the people who are able to be independent of government. And someone who lives on a couple of acres with water supply, some stock and able to grow their own food is independent of government. They don't want people out there. They want mm. them in cities, living in apartments. I said to you earlier, I think there's some merit in the theory that, that I've seen floating around that one of the ways uh, they're clearing out the countryside is to say, well, these wildfires make it too dangerous to insure, so you can't get a mortgage. So come and live in our 15-minute city and eat the bugs. 
often you need to look at the wider themes of things. So in Muriel's article here, she says by 2019, the Radical United Nations Agenda 2030 had been embedded into New Zealand legislative and regulatory framework. We only found out because Jacinda Ardern boasted about it during a speech she delivered in New York. My government is doing something not many other countries have tried. We've incorporated the principles of 2030 Agenda to our domestic policymaking in a way that we hope will drive system-level actions. Yeah. Again, not not campaigned on. We didn't. Yeah, I no, don't remember hearing that in the campaign. No. So then you look at what is going on with the disasters that we've had in in our time, and I think this is something that the key government did. That actually, this is where the butterfly effect mm. of the largesse of government can be a dangerous thing, and that was when they went into Christchurch and there was financial support from government to areas in Christchurch, particularly with ones that were in the red zone and moving people out and uh, almost essentially underwriting a certain level of insurance. Now, not to say that it's all clean cut in Christchurch, I know for a fact that it's not, and there are even still people to this day trying to get what they're owed. But the dangerous thing here is is that with this redzoning or governments now saying via councils that you can't live on your land because of a maybe, could be, Mm. should be something that may happen in the future, that then sets a really dangerous precedent because if the governments are saying this, that then means the responsibility of the landowner who, if you were a responsible landowner and you'd taken out insurance and then the insurance company says, well, I'm not going to cover you on that plot of land because the the government are not going to back it up because they believe that there's a risk. All of a sudden, you've got this piece of land that unless you uh, take a a buyout from the government is now, in effect, useless. And then meanwhile, on the land that isn't useless and potentially is in areas of greater value, they're running around putting these SNAs over large swathes of farmland. It's almost like they are invisibly, as you said, corralling you into these more urban centres because they don't want all of these rural people living as their sovereign individuals on the land, living their own lives and not essentially suckling on the tit of government. It is, it's, you've got yes, to watch out that, for this stuff. You're seeing that in Māori media a lot as well, you know, these kind of unquestioning, oh, you know, we're, we're going to have to move to stay safe and so what are we going to do with our sacred sites? The discussion jumps immediately to how are we going to do this rather than, hey, mana moto hake, you know, we've lived here for, for centuries and we're going to stay here. It all comes back to that quote that's often attributed to Thomas Jefferson, but in all, in all likeliness might not have been, government big enough to supply everything you need is big enough to take everything you have. That's where we are. That's why the spending increased 80% under Labour. There are still people who think, oh, you know, can I suckle the teat of the state? Mm. But I think anyone who thinks about it thinks, man, the idea was that the government was borrowing and spending all this money so they got votes. The more sinister undertone is they were doing it so they could have power over people. And that was how they got people to lock down because so many people now depend on, in part, money that in some way comes from the public purse. So it's a lever. Oh, couldn't agree more. Muriel goes on, uh, speaking of levers, she was on the way out after the first term. It was looking like a one term. Yeah. And then COVID. And COVID changed everything. And as, exactly as you said, that we were already groomed. We we're already groomed for those lockdowns. 
that then got her over the line with more than 50%. And in the last three years, the wrath and destruction. And again, this is one that it's sort of kind of, there was a little bit of a hiss and a roar after she got back in a second time on this. And I know that Muriel has been one of the ones really banging this drum quite loudly, and that is Hey Pua Pua. Mm. So whilst we didn't agree to um, Agenda 2030 in the first term, Hey Pua Pua was sat, written there, ready, not campaigned on once, not an yeah. absolute whisper about it anywhere. Yeah. I mean, the and, media should have been an outrage about that, and they weren't. I mean, there was, a, there was a, 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 an article on Monday's uh, New Zealand Herald, which was about oh, the Kingitanga celebration and how everyone turned up to it. Hipkins, it's classic doublespeak. He was saying that opposition politicians were drumming up racial division. It's like, what have you just spent six years doing? And furthermore, even more hilariously, asked if Labour also had a responsibility to better explain some of the policies. This is about co-governance, right? Uh, Hipkins said he understood how fear could come from uncertainty. And this is his quote, but I believe as political leaders, we have a responsibility for the path forward rather than to exploit that fear for political purposes. <laughs> oh, That's my goodness. Again, the double the double speak is getting uh, pretty high pitched at this stage. It sure is. She then she talks about the Hey Pua Pua report and I mean God, we'll be here all day if we go dive into Hey Pua Pua, but we're starting to see it now. We're at the pointy end where things are getting rammed through. Some stuff's been watered down. Both ACT and uh National have sort of said they're gonna roll pretty much anything that was Hey Pua Pua back. Good. Mm. I'll believe it when I say it. She does talk about here though, Labour justified co-governance by claiming that the Treaty of Waitangi delivered a partnership between Māori and the Crown, but the great Māori leader Aparananata and his brilliant explanation of the original meaning of the treaty shows that this is to be a lie. Is that yeah. word again? Well, uh, not just him, there was also the um, Kohimaramara Convention in 1860 where I think it was like 60 assembled chiefs agreed that they had indeed ceded sovereignty. Mm. You know, but again, it, we expect people to tell the truth. They don't feel that burden because no. the, the the means justify the ends. So I or, looked up um, the transcript of the speech that uh, Aparananata gave at the centenary of the treaty. Yeah. Okay, so that was 1940. What remains of the treaty? What is there in the treaty that Māori can today celebrate wholeheartedly with you? Let me say one thing. Clause 1 of the treaty handed over the mana and sovereignty of New Zealand to Queen Victoria and her descendants forever. That is the outstanding fact today. But for the shield of sovereignty handed over to Her Majesty and her descendants, I doubt whether there will be a free Māori race in New Zealand today. Our acknowledgement of that outstanding fact in history of 100 years as we offer up the youth and the very flower of our race to stand side by side with you in an empire's fight. If your excellency, that means that the obtaining of the full manhood of the Māori race, well, we can then accept the war as our opportunity of making good with you as joint citizens in the British Empire. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty unambiguous, isn't it? Very unambiguous. And it is the final paragraph, actually, the final part of the speech I thought was also interesting when we look at things now. But there still remains the thing called the spirit of the Māori people. We want to remain part, but a distinct 
and indelible part of the future inhabitants of this country. The message of the Māori race is to you is we want to retain our individuality as a race. If judged by your standards, we fall short. Try and look at it from the Māori standpoint. So long as we are happy, does it matter very much whether we square up with the Pākehā standards or not? Are they so very good that we should square up to them? Let us achieve health, comfort, happiness. We are well on the way to that now, thanks to the quality of the government in New Zealand. But while you help us, please remember that a lot of things that you do for us would appear to be for our betterment, but they contain with the dynamic forces that show or other shatter the Māori culture that we wish to retain as the foundation for the individuality of our people. Bravo. Yeah. I read that... And I thought to myself, wow, but more than that, I actually think this government is undoing that. What he's saying about wanting to remain distinctly Māori, I absolutely totoko that sentiment. Yeah, do it. You know, let's have a true treaty partnership where one people under the law, because, you know, unless you can find me an example of ethno-nationalism that uh, has been kumbaya, I think any reading of history uh, reveals pretty quickly it's a terrible, terrible idea. Mm. Well, and I think that's what Nata was saying. And he was he was saying allow us our, our mana, which I believe Māori had for a really long time, within a partnership with other Kiwis. But now they're trying to use, as you said, they're trying to use the law and use regulation to actually tip, you know, put a, a very solid finger on those scales, which is not his intent at all. But again, you can draw the comparison to that speech and a statesman such as Sir Aparananata then take a look at Martin Luther King Jr. and all the work that he did in the civil rights movement and look what's going on culturally and ideologically around race in a country yeah. like the United States. Well, I mean, again, I, you know, we've sort of done enough shows that I'm starting to repeat myself, but for people who didn't hear the early ones, it's my frequent uh, caution that women thought CIA and the Rockefellers were doing them a big favor and uplifting women when they sponsored feminism. And now those same psychopaths are suddenly really concerned about indigenous peoples and, you know, telling people in countries who are non-indigenous, yeah, actually, you don't belong here, you're not legitimate, you're colonizers. It's just taking the fight out of them. What what the Rockefellers were really, and, and the CIA were really sponsoring was division and uh, demoralization of the most likely opponents. And I, I think, you know, as, as I said, I've got a history uh, in my family and me personally that goes, and you too, goes mm. a long way back, common interests and, and love. We should aim to build on that rather than tearing ourselves to bits at the behest of uh, people who print money. Yeah, absolutely. Where do you want to go to next? You and I had that common experience reading the Weekend Herald where we each only pulled out one article. It was pretty slim pickings. I tell you what, I mean, if that was a diet plan, I'd be you know, skinny mini, skinny mini, and we both pulled out the same one. Yeah. So, yeah. What are the odds? What are the odds? And uh, we're talking about Bruce Cottrell's opinion piece, which was politicians keep frittering away our future. Oh, staying on a theme. Again, a fair bit underlined. I mean, the the best, I mean, you know, he's, he's, He's talking about bringing some pretty um, heavy criticism of of Labour and their, 
the games taking uh, GST off fruit and vegetables and then um, slapping another petrol tax, which is, is going to make it about even up. But his last sentence pretty much summed it up. The incumbent Labour government does not look like a group of people who desperately want to make a major difference to the country's outlook. Rather, they appear to be an unqualified, shoddy and desperate group grasping for power with nothing but their own interests in mind. I raised this uh, last week as well that, you know, Chris Hipkins has said we're totally focused on winning. Mm. That's true. I'd, yeah. I'd like them to be totally focused on children being able to read and write after 10 years in their union-approved uh, education system. And I noticed that after six years, the Labour have, have finally um, released a policy that prioritises children learning to read and write. Uh, which is ironic given that the most numerous um, occupation in New Zealand's parliament at the moment is ex-teacher, closely followed by union hack. When they te- they said they're mandating the way that teachers teach English, mathematics and science, I was yeah. like, surely that's Education Policy 101. Are you already doing that? And then... Then the fiscal policy announcement that te- that uh, yeah. students need to be taught fiscal literacy in schools. Yeah, the projection was satire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had, and uh, we can quickly bring it in because I've only got a little un- underlined in the Sunday Star Times. Alison Mao fretting that uh, I'm hoping any policies aimed at better basic literacy and numeracy standards do not leave behind other less traditional subject areas like sex and media literacy education and other so-called soft skills. I highlighted that exact section too, and I wrote I wrote in there, so in other words, we can't lose the gender education and the propaganda. Is that what you're saying, Ellie? But she then goes on. So she spends over half the column, though, justifying her reasoning at why gender and media needed to stay in the curriculum. And it was because it would have helped her teenage self. Yeah. So, oh, really, Ellie? Oh, look, you figured it out eventually, darling. So, you know, it's not <laughs> oh. what I said to you before we went to air because that's probably not suitable for broadcast. Aren't we getting mature? We are. And you didn't have the stomach for this. So I did not have the stomach for this. I started you reading it. You couldn't it. No, I could No, I'll be brutally honest. I couldn't. I was to use the parlance. I was triggered. Yeah. This is the review of Ashley Bloomfield. It's a big gush piece on him that manages to not mention the vaccine, although it's got a picture of him holding up a syringe and uh, a book about the COVID pandemic in a way that you imagine if you've got myocarditis or pericarditis or any one of these terrible uh, immune issues that people have suddenly started getting to the point where we were talking about this, the stats have come out and from the year 2022, June to June 2023, we've got, what, 37% increase in people who are too sick to work? Yep, the disability figures. In fact, un momento por favor, I've got them right here. We have 14% uh, excess deaths, birth rate down by 28%, disability rate up by 38%, heart attacks up by 83%, and strokes by 25%. Amazing. And, of course, none of that rated a mention. Shane Curry, give me a call, mate. You've got to take a good, hard look at yourself. Doing that Andrea Vance barefaced lie. I mean, he, he admitted to being a micromanager, 
So he obviously got on well with Jacinda Ardern on that, but he's gone to work for the World Health Organization, which is, of course, heavily sponsored by Pfizer. And not a lot of people know this, but their agenda is set by their sponsors. Um, and hasn't he got some cushy job with Auckland University as well? Yeah, he's doing a bit of lecturing, but he, he's saying the pandemic is not a problem and we've settled into a pattern in New Zealand and globally where it's not the main thing. And he's quoted as saying, we've got a really good understanding. We've got effective vaccines. We've got effective treatments. So, you know, I'd like to see his data for saying that we've got an effective vaccine because even when he was up on the podium of truth, they knew it didn't stop transmission. They knew it didn't stop people catching it. They vaguely thought maybe it makes it not as bad, but I don't think people's experiences bore that out. He's talking about the need to introduce more courageous, reformulated food and introducing taxes on the likes of sugar and sweetened beverages. So again, you know, he has a reputation for being a micromanager and he wants to uh, micromanage us. So he's, he's saying the big concern is long covid there's still people dying, but again, we've got a residual level of acceptance that that's the ongoing impact here. Is it long COVID, Actually, I mean, are you looking at whether people who were unvaccinated suffered at lower rates than people who, who were? There was another um, story in the Sunday Star Times where Virginia Fallon left New Zealand. Mm. Did you see that? That one I did read, and I actually thought she did quite a good job. Yep. It was interesting that they both had those pieces in the same paper, but... Well, there's uh, a lot of rearguard action happening. Yeah. You know, of... there's, there's a, oh, you know, we just took a break from um, from confronting these issues. And, you know, even there, it, it, she, she says it saw multiple lockdowns and a country spend of millions. Darling, oh, I think it was um, b -b 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 more, billions. yeah, put a B on that. It had the this guy... Uh, Emeritus history professor Jeffrey Rice, speaking about the COVID restrictions being lifted, he said, we still have thousands of cases and people are still dying from it. So the recent relaxation of the last controls could be seen as premature if a new strain of the virus appears. That's the kind of school of thought that hungers for constant total lockdown. Well, in terms of that announcement, and while Prime Minister Chris Hipkins' announcement this week acknowledged some of the impacts, others were undeniably glossed over. There was no mention of how the pandemic spawned the so-called freedom movement. There's that so-called again. Yeah, I had a thought about that this morning. I think it should be the so-called regenerative movement. You know, we're the parallel culture and there needs to be a complete rebuild. So it's not just freedom. Yeah. It goes on to say the so-called freedom movement and pushed a significant section of society to become utterly untrusting of authority, nor the parliamentary occupation that culminated in tear gas and fire on the streets of the capital. While there was no doubt fractions in our collective sense of unity, Hipkins said, I believe New Zealanders can be enormously proud. There is absolutely no question that we saved lives. Mm. Where's the data on that, Chris? Yeah, fourteen percent no excess question. deaths, eighty-three percent well, I mean, increase know, in heart Maybe the vaccine did save some lives, but what's the total balance? 
the statistics, which again didn't appear in this article, that uh, our excess deaths will say clearly our excess deaths are up 14% over and above what we'd expect. So there's absolutely no question that it saved lives. Mm. There's absolutely no question that 14% more people are dying than we'd expect. But experts say that these life-saving measures not only cost us enormously, they reshape society in its future. Of course, everyday Kiwis say the same thing. Hmm. During the past few years, the Sunday Star Times has spoken to families torn apart by disagreements over mandates and vaccines, as well as self-described outcasts who feared they'd never return to the national fold. The mental damage caused by this will last for a while, said an unvaccinated Ben Visser last year, and it's a lot more severe than a lot of people realise. Then there's Dawn Bodger, who lost her job as an early childhood teacher due to a refusal to get vaccinated. People are afraid of us because they don't understand us. And during the parliamentary occupation that brought Wellington to a standstill, Chief Human Rights Commissioner Paul Hunt described the five meetings he had with protesters as pain, disaffection, alienation and anger is what I heard. Being called a river of filth by Michael Wood will do that to you, won't it? Yeah, well, kind of pissed you off a bit, just a touch. And, and again, what's left unsaid there is that there is now this belief that everything is over, right? Now, we are... In the freedom movement is moving forward, as you said. We, we the regenerative are regenerative movement. Yes, the regenerative movement. But those mandates still exist. You uh, can't work for a Tafata order agency of any kind if you have not had at least three vaccines. I had a talk to a doctor who visited an A&E last night. Her landlady for her, her clinic had had a fall and um, hadn't had it looked at. And she said, you, you know, you might have a broken hip. So she took her along and she said they got there. And the triage nurses who were just absolutely, she said she felt sorry for the lady on the desk and the nurses. They're kind of flapping around ineffectually. And uh, they said, actually, you might want to come back. There's, there's 11 people ahead of you, but you'll keep your place in the queue. And she got back an hour later and there were nine people in the queue. There were two doctors on. In the hour, the doctors had seen one patient each. And she, she's a very accomplished doctor. And she said, I was, I was just sitting there. And I was looking at these people who are waiting, these kids who are waiting five hours. And I just looked at them and I thought, that kid's got impetigo. They need some flu clocks. That kid's just grizzly. Check their ears, check their temperature, give them some paracetamol and send them home. Give me a name badge and a stethoscope. I'll clear this room in an hour. And you do see that in, in hospitals. I've spoken before about how morale is something that, unless you've got a soul, it's difficult to manage for. Once it goes, all the activities can seem the same, but your performance just is tanking. And I find when I go into hospitals, I notice that in terms of hand speed. You know, these mm. people are slammed, but they're moving slow. She said, you know, she saw a, a doctor come on and uh, she said, I, you know, I felt that before. She's worked in busy A&Es in, in England. She said, I just recognized the look. They just looked at this full waiting list and just thinking, what the hell have the doctors been on during the day been doing? And there's two doctors she said she never saw them. She said, I don't know. what they, they had them hidden out the back. Like they should have been in there just prioritizing people, sending people home. And I mean, she's got a private clinic. 
And uh, that's the difference between the public system and the private system. Private system, you've got to give people good service so they don't keep coming back. Public system, it doesn't really matter. So you can sort of say, oh, well, you know, but the service we offer is free. It's not free. It costs about, well, it probably is more like 180 200 bucks per patient in A&E now. There is a cost, and it's considerably more than the cost in private care. I wonder, is there a deterrent for things that are obviously things that they should have been gone to a normal GP for but won't because of the cost. So do they make them wait because then that deters them from doing it again? Yeah, well, good point. Just shows you, though, that uh, this is a system that is crumbling. And uh, um, one of these days I think you and I might have to do a, an entire session on public versus private. It's a sacred cow, socialised yeah. public medicine in this country that nobody wants to tackle. Well, it's, it's true Britain as well. Everyone, NHS is held in such high esteem, but everyone likes moaning about it. The more top heavy it gets in terms of management, the less effective it is. You know, she was saying, just looking at it, she could see good case to be made for essentially private A&E clinics that are government funded because, yeah, to, to, to do that, you know, there's ways of just slamming it out. You know, a GP sees, what, six patients an hour or you know, so the, you've got these doctors in in this hospital, according to her, seeing one each an hour. Mm. I do have a theory, though, with all of what's been going on. And, and the big Ooh. thing that smacked me heading six weeks out from the election is we're in this crazy state with the current, current government of what I call political Munchausen's by proxy. Mm. where so much of what they've implemented, so much of what they've tinkered, whether it be housing, whether it be rent reforms, whether it be water, whether it be environment, health mandates, COVID, even now vaping is the latest one that they've yeah. come out, that in their effort to try and fix a problem, they've created a problem and then, then they try to swoop in to say, but that's okay because we'll fix this problem. It's like, but you created the problem in the first place. Yeah. And I think that's why the support's tanking. You know, people are hearing all of these, um, you know, enthusiastically promoted uh, new policies. And it's like, dudes, you've had six years. The last three years, you've had a majority where you could pass anything you want. You know, why have you been messing around with what you've done and achieved so little? Exactly. Exactly. Which is probably a blessing, you know, in many ways for New Zealand. True. True. Oh, and congratulations to the Spanish women's team for winning the Women's FIFA World Cup. I wondered if they popped to Palmerston for drinks. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I digress. Well, thank you very much, as always. Are you, be, are you on the panel again this week? I, I think I might have a week off this week. I know that they're rotating them a bit, which is fine. I, I have, uh, and I, I shared it with you uh, the other day, I've scorched off a, a lengthy column after a lengthy absence from writing them, and I'll, I'll read it as well, just so it's not too onerous. Is that up uh, on the website yet? I'm not sure whether they've done it yet because they did have that couple of days off at the start of the week, but of it should have, be up yeah. there soon. So uh, go and have a look for that. It's under blogs. It is under blogs. I got to see the draft. It's uh, most excellent. So I definitely guarantee uh, that you will enjoy it. Remember, if you want to share something with us, with Marty or I, you can do so. 2057 is the text number. Inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. Um, and you get and I... in touch. As, as I said, if you're a journalist and uh, you want an outlet for your need to tell the truth, we'll treat it with the greatest discretion and you'll be able to soothe your battered conscience. There I'm you sure go. we'll get on fine. We're not crazy. 
No, we're not crazy. All right, don't disappear. The work news of the week is still coming up here on Counterculture, here on Reality Check Radio. Thanks, Marty. Have a great week. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio.